Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings, War Room podcast listeners. I am Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. And today I'm very happy to bring you the fourth episode in our series on great strategic thinkers. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Patrick Bratton, who is Professor of Strategy and National Security Studies at the Army War College. Dr. Bratton specializes in naval and maritime strategy and is a regional expert on contemporary India and South Asia. But for today, Dr. Bratton is going to take us back in historical time a bit to the late 19th century and the writings of naval theorist Alfred Thayer Mahan, whose most notable strategic work is the influence of sea power upon history. So Patrick, thanks for joining me today. I uh, Thank you, Jackie. It's my pleasure to be here. All right, so we're going to start with the same question as, as I've asked the others before. What do we need to know about the author and the text in order to understand or read it well? That's a good question. Um, for Mahan, I think it's interesting to think about the context in which he was writing a changing sort of geopolitical um, sort of role for the United States as the frontier closes and the United States has a debate about continuing to look inward or looking outward. And so Mahan was very much an active participant in that debate. And so a lot of his writings are directed toward thinking about the role of the United States, the role of geography, and most importantly, as his work uh, sort of indicates, the role of sea power uh, upon countries and upon history. And of course, trying to bring in aspects of sea power and geography that Americans do not always think of naturally. And so there's a kind of a educating sort of process to Mahan's writing, uh, given the time period, uh, that has parallels for us and for other countries, you could argue, in the contemporary world. Great. Where, where does Mahan um, learn about naval and maritime strategy, right? Because his, his father is a land power right. sort of guy. Right. All right, so his father, Dennis Hartmahan, was a professor at West Point who is not widely known as being a, a scholar of Jomini. And so there's a, kind of a school of thought that Jomini transmitted through his father to Mahan, sort of influences a lot of Mahan's thinking about principles of maritime strategy and sea power. Um, for Mahan, uh, one of the, the things that's funny about Mahan is that he was not very comfortable being on a ship. He was not a very good sailor, one could argue. Uh, and so he was much more at home sort of in a library writing and reading. And so really an in-depth sort of read in history for Mahan, reading about the importance of what sea power has done, whether you're talking the ancient world, Roman Carthage, or you're talking about more recent uh, um, wars and military campaigns. Particularly he was interested in the struggle for supremacy between Britain and France. Uh, in the 17th through the 19th century, but also U.S. history as well. He wrote on the War of 1812 uh, and other um, other pieces as well. So really, he's kind of a guy very much sort of steeped in sort of history, military history, diplomatic history, uh, and that's where he's sort of a reading into history what he thinks are important themes, concepts, trends, and so on. Great. What, what would you say are the one or two um, key ideas or central ideas of the, of the text? Um, if I had to pick two, there's a lot of stuff in Mahan. Uh, one of the ones is this link in sea power between the military and the economic, or the political and the economic. I think oftentimes when we're looking at sea power, we tend to just think about gray hole ships with like numbers on the side. Uh, but for Mahan, there's a sort of virtuous cycle between fleets and between merchant shipping, merchant industry, uh, if you will. And this is sort of a virtuous cycle for Mahan, or virtuous circle. 
Um, essentially, for Mahan, you don't have a battle fleet without having a merchant fleet, right? The, the reason for having one is because you have a merchant fleet. And so this larger idea of sea power having an economic or political angle, not just a military angle, I think is very important for Mahan to understanding, as well to the role of the government and government's intent and government's choice, particularly for countries that have an option of being a sea power or a land power or both. Mahan is quite interested in this and he was very concerned in the case of the United States that the continental sort of tradition in the United States would trump a sort of turn to the sea and so he was urging the United States to look outward to the sea. So I think the role of government and its awareness of the maritime domain I think is very important as well for understanding Mahan. Is Mahan important for um Obviously, it seems important for powers with large coastlines. Mm -hmm. Is Mahan also important for, uh, say, states that are smaller or maybe should landlocked states <laughs> need Mahan at all? Right. The, 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 the avid reading of Mahan is Or even, Bolivia like, and, double <laughs> landlocked countries. Right. Even worse. I think it's interesting in the sense that while Mahan is interested in the government's policies about sea power, there's also the understanding of the role that sea power, maritime power can have. So even if you're landlocked, um, some appreciation perhaps of the role that sea power has in the countries that are surrounding you that are not landlocked and how that might affect you would also come into play. I would argue probably be less important, but still something that is good to be aware of, if you will. Right, if Mahan is trying to sort of understand the way the world works and the way military power works, um, then there's there's probably some some kernel of it. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, see Mahan's ideas sort of translated into other domains, uh, perhaps, mm. perhaps later on. Any other sort of key or central ideas that we should pay attention to? Uh, in Mahan, um, as, you've, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, the critical role that some of the early sea power theorists had uh, on sort of giving a theoretical or conceptual framework for air power, for space power, even cyber today, uh, is something also bearing in mind when people talk about control and denial of domains. It's something that's rooted in the writings of Mahan, Corbett, and Castex, and, and other writers of this time period. So even though they were writing about ships and water, a lot of people have taken these conceptual ideas and carried them much further into other domains. Okay, so you mentioned Corbett, and he, mm -hmm. he tends to be the theorist that's, that's maybe paired with or contrasted with Mm -hmm. Mahan, can you give us the, the oh. <laughs> re I don't know if you were expecting that, can you give us the really quick rundown on the sort of Mahan-Corbett no. uh, debate? Uh, it's interesting. Um, there's an easy, there's a kind of a flippant answer and then there's a more nuanced answer. I, the flippant answer I could give you is that generally speaking people tend to trash Mahan today. I, I kind of joke that Mahan is often sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of theorists, right? Big guns, <laughs> big battles, and you know, racist imperialism, we'll just toss them out. Corbett, nuanced, Klaus-Witzian, sophisticated naval thinking, and so on. Uh, I mean, that's sort of the, the flippant sort of response. I think the, the interesting, the, the more interesting way to try to sort of uh, conceptualize them is sort of sometimes it's useful, like we often talk about, talking about the, the different realms in which, say, Jomini is writing versus where, you know, say, Klaus-Witz is writing. I think Mahan's legacy tends to be larger on this sort of policy, strategy, conceptualizing the maritime domain. Corbett, probably you could have more good or more get good, good stuff, if you will, out of Corbett looking at sort of naval operational art, naval strategy, much more in a naval aspect. So sometimes people sort of divide them between Mahan as the sea power theorist 
and Corbett is the naval theorists, if you will. And that's perhaps a, a way to see them not so much as being competitive, but being complementary in a sense. Okay, thanks. I think that gets us maybe to the next question, which is um, what are the major pitfalls or challenges if someone were to go pick up a copy of the influence of sea power upon history? Uh, first, they might be overwhelmed by the sort of size and, and scope of the thing. You know, the funniest one, this will sound really weird, is that one of the big barriers that is that it's in English. Well, a lot of the other theorists that we read, we always have the excuse, well, it's a bad translation. You know, it was <laughs> terrible. I couldn't read it. With Mahan, Mahan's written in English. And it's written in a very dense Victorian 19th century prose. So it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, Thomas Hardy is, you know, written in English, but not everybody runs out to Barnes and Noble <laughs> and picks up Thomas Hardy, right? Um, so Mahan, we don't have the excuse of a bad translation. And so all of the, the time period, the heavy prose, the sort of, one could argue, even argue some of the underpinnings behind some of Mahan's ideas, um, his sort of, uh, his very strong evangelical uh, faith that he had, social Darwinism, the imperial age, these things make some of Mahan's writings a bit foreign to us, even though he's writing in, in his own language, in our own language. Um, I would say also the other one too is there's a lot of preconceived notions of Mahan. I kind of mentioned these kind of uh, jokingly earlier that essentially I got it, big fleet, big guns, big battleship, World War II, proven them wrong, moving on. You know, there's a kind of a, a way of dismissing uh, Mahan and a lot of his more interesting aspects to his writing. The other danger I'd also urge, the danger to see him and a lot of other geopolitical, geostrategic thinkers as sort of a geographical determinist, right? Uh, so Britain, island nation, navy, good. No island, no coastline, bad. Right, in a sense, <laughs> there's probably more to Mahan, if you will, and he was really interested in these countries like the United States that have a choice, uh, that have a choice between being a purely sort of terrestrial power or being both a terrestrial and sort of a maritime power. And so I think there's a lot of goodness in Mahan that's interesting to read. It's just not always accessible, and we also carry a lot of preconceived notions uh, about his utility today in, in, in the world. So it's yet another classical strategic text that we need to take the time to sort of really wrestle with, really read and like muck around in, um, and then perhaps abandon, like you said, those preconceived notions and, and the, the bumper stickers and the cliches that come um, when we try to condense very difficult material mm. into accessible things. Um, we've, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but what, what would you say are the benefits for 21st century strategists re-engaging with Mahan or perhaps reading Mahan for the first time? It's interesting. One of the struggles, uh, we, we have a similar sort of end product, but we've gotten here in a different way. So Mahan's concern when he was writing was that Americans don't think about the sea because we were so obsessed with westward expansion and expanding uh, the American horizons, if you will. Uh, today, we almost have the opposite problem because the United States and its allies have had sort of command or control of the seas, if you will, for so many years. We kind of take sea power and command of the seas for granted. We kind of take for granted our, our ability to project power where we see fit. And I think, as indications uh, are sort of showing, a lot of other countries are interested in Mahan. They're interested in reading what Mahan can do for them. And so in a sense, reading Mahan, while it seems sort of obvious, hey, sea control, got that, big navy, got that. Uh, in a sense, uh, we should still re-engage with sea power because other people are thinking about sea power. And again, we might not have that ability to project power and have the access uh, that we've taken for granted for the past 50 or so years. So you can kind of paraphrase Trotsky's thing, right? You know, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Like, we might not be interested in sea power, but 
Sivar is perhaps interested in us. Excellent. And that seems to be particularly relevant with the U.S. and China mm-hmm. right now. Um, are the Chinese interested in Mahan? There seems to be a great deal of interest in reading Mahan uh, in China, in India, and other places, similar to how we saw a great deal of interest in reading Mahan in Imperial Japan uh, in the early 20th century. I think the tricky thing is, is how are they reading Mahan? There, there are various ways of reading Mahan. You can read a more martial or naval Mahan. You can read a more trading merchant cooperative Mahan, in a sense. Uh, and so the question would be, I would say, is how are they reading Mahan and how much influence? Because, again, one of the tricky things is that we'll say, like, China's reading Mahan or, you know, we're reading Sun Tzu, but how much influence that's actually having? And do we have a kind of salad bowl effect where, say, we look at a theorist, we pick one or two things that aid us in our particular bureaucratic political endeavors that we want to we want to do at the moment and then justify it with sort of a veneer. <laughs> right. Using the right language or the concepts without sort of deeply engaging, right. perhaps. And so that's one thing we've seen a lot of scholars who've worked on imperial Japanese readings of Mahan have questioned how much Mahan was actually being influential and how much he was, his vocabulary was being used uh, because it was a useful sort of intellectual uh, capital or cachet, if you will, you could a- attach to what might be a, a sort of service parochial argument, right? We need more money for the Navy. Well, Mahan said so. It's not just us, right? In right, so sense, the right? sort of appeal to authority, well, we've got, we've got this guy who says we need a certain amount or number of things, and therefore we must, we must do it. Uh, we, we here at the Army War College don't have too many uh, naval officers. Um, what, what would you say for our students uh, and our other sort of listening audience who may be more unfamiliar with the sea than they are uh. with land? Um, what's, what's your, what, are your, what, what are your last words about naval or maritime sort of strategy for people who are primarily land power experts? You know, I, I guess I would come back to a point I mentioned earlier. Um, just because we are used to operating sort of mostly unimpeded in that domain, uh, don't lose sight that that can be much more problematic. One of our colleagues, I, I think you're going to get him on the show, Ed Kaplan, uh, who's an air power uh, specialist, I mean, he makes the case that it's important to think about the role that air power has that you often take for granted, just moving troops around on a battlefield with, uh, with, with helicopters or having close air support from an A-10. In a non-permissive environment, uh, that gets much more difficult. I would say if you look at a lot of the case studies for a lot of uh, our students, putting all of the power projection to places like the Middle East or Afghanistan, a huge component of that is done through sea power, uh, let alone underseas cables for the internet and all sorts of other things. So a lot of the logistics, the command and control, all of these things are done through sea power. And again, we just kind of take it for granted that this is just something like clean water or having a flushable toilet. It's just sort of normal. It's when you don't have clean water and your toilet doesn't flush that things get really bad, right? And so I think conceptualizing the fact that sea power can be cut off or can be contested, uh, particularly with the diffusion of technology today, uh, that we can't really take it for granted, so we still need to engage and think about it. Great. I think that sounds like really, really solid advice. So I'm going to go back and uh, get used to reading some 19th century dense, heavy, heavy writing. I'm going to look forward to it. Uh, and I thank you for your, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much, Jackie. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, 
or the U.S. government. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.